morning we're looking at this church in Laodicea, and uh, since the beginning of the year we looked at the glory of God, and then last Lord's Day morning we looked at the inheritance that we have as believers, but then within that really we've been commenting on really the general scene amongst the churches of Jesus Christ, and really in the week I was challenged as reading through this particular passage. And so I want to draw out a number of lessons for us this morning, and hopefully that will stir us and help us as we seek the Lord into this new year. And the first thing that I want you to see this morning is this, that Christ's eye is always upon his church. And in Revelation 2 to 3, there are seven churches, and Christ's word to each of these churches and the judgments or commendations that he brings to them. And uh, geographically, they were all placed in what we would now call Turkey and what was called back then Asia Minor. And it's interesting because all of these churches were not very old in terms of existence. So directly or indirectly, Paul would have been involved in the planting and the establishing of these works. And so it's likely that Paul went to Asia Minor around 50 to 55 AD. And at the time John is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's around 95 AD. And so each of these churches had not been in existence for more than 40 to 50 years. Now, friends, straight away there is a great lesson for us there. You know, even from that fact, we learn something very important. It doesn't take long for churches to stray from the truth and to head into decline. And remember, these churches were planted and established by the greatest preacher who ever lived, the Lord Jesus aside, of course. And these were men full of power. They were sound in doctrine. They were spiritual men and godly men, apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the master builders, those given to set the foundation. And so these churches, they had the very best of starts, fantastic, inspired, heavenly preaching and the the power and demonstration of the Spirit. And the tragedy is that even within a very short time, it was possible for those churches to know trouble and to struggle, and to drop into a very poor spiritual state. It's a lesson that we cannot afford to ignore. You know, if you were to look over church history, it is rare for churches to remain sound for more than a century. You know, there are many that begin to drift and come away from the Scriptures and eventually end up far from the principles which mark their beginnings or times of faithfulness. You know, that's one of, the, one of the things that we need to consider. Another lesson is that these churches, although founded on the same truth, vary greatly in their condition. Each of these churches in Revelation 2 to 3 had different issues, how different they are in their character. And so to one of them, the Lord Jesus says, you have a name, but you're dead. To another, he gives them the, the highest commendation saying that he's set an open door before them that no man can shut to another he says and the one we're considering this morning i know your works they're neither hot nor cold there are great differences between these churches and this teaches us that the lord jesus the head of the church stands in the midst of all his churches his eyes upon them all the time he is the judge of all his own churches And whereas there is a a final judgment that will come for individuals in eternity, judgment upon his churches happens in time, as we see in these chapters. 
Remember what 1 Peter 4 says, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So Christ is watching every church, every body of his people. His eye is upon it and he forms that judgment about it night and day. And the judgment of these seven churches is recorded for us here in Scripture and we are left in no doubt as to what the Lord thinks of each one of them. He gives the assessment, he tells them plainly, he tells them to their face what he thinks of them. And he does it because he loves them and is concerned for them. So that's the, the thing, Christ's eyes upon his churches. And then the second thing in these lessons is that Christ searches and judges. And so I want us to consider this church at Laodicea. And the Lord Jesus has some very strong things to say to this body. Now, friends, I'm not saying that we as a church are in the position of Laodicea. Beloved, I don't think that we would be labeled as them. But in considering what is happening in the wider scene at this point, in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, in this land which we should love and have great concern for, there are some vital lessons which we need to see. Now, let me just start by saying what the Lord Jesus does not criticize the church for. The criticisms that he doesn't bring. He doesn't criticize this church at Laodicea for being too strict in their keeping of the word of God. He doesn't criticize them for being too concerned with sound teaching and doctrine. He doesn't criticize them for desiring true spiritual fellowship with him and with one another. He doesn't criticize them because they're keen to speak to each other about the kingdom. He doesn't criticize them for being out of step with the world's fallen culture or not appealing to the world. He doesn't lay that burden upon them that they weren't keeping up with the spirit of the age and of the world. And you can study throughout this letter, none of the things that I've just mentioned are criticisms brought by the Savior. Now, I make that point because I know that some of you get weary because there are many people who judge us in terms of those things. They say, oh, you're yesterday's church. You're irrelevant. You've got nothing to say in this culture. You've got no value. Who would want anything to do with you, with a group of people so apparently out of touch? Friends, let other people say what they want to say. The only judgment that matters is the head of this church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he says. Let people say what they want to say. What Christ thinks is what matters. Pleasing him is our concern, and he has told us in his word those things that he is pleased with, so let us get on with that. Now, we need to remind ourselves about the one who is speaking here, the Lord Jesus himself. And so, if you look at verse 14 onwards, you've got this wonderful description of him. To the angel of the church, to the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so each of these addresses to the churches begin with descriptions of Christ himself. And they all link back to that, that main vision at the beginning of Revelation, which John saw on the Isle of Patmos. And so as each of these churches receive their judgment, they are reminded of the glorious one who is head of the church. And so what are the Laodiceans reminded of concerning Christ? He is the Amen. He is the Amen. You say, well, why would he be called that? Well, the word amen in the Hebrew is not only a declaration of let it be so, 
but it means truth. You know, such a relevant description of the Lord Jesus as he speaks in judgment on this particular church. He is the one who knows the truth about every one of us. He knows what every member is like, every person present is like. He knows our inner character. He knows our hearts. He knows where we really are with him. He knows those of us who are right with him, those who are not. He knows those who love him, those who do not, those who seek him and those who do not. He is the Amen. You know, this church at Laodicea, they needed to know that because they'd become fake. They'd got all the externals, but they'd forgotten that it's the inner man that matters most. He's the Amen. He's also the true witness. He speaks the truth in perfection. He is the truth. The Lord Jesus says it as it really is. He sees our hearts. He sees as they are. He reveals what they are. He is the true witness. There is no pretense. There's no softening of the edges, just a real evaluation. And then it also says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, some get into difficulty there, but needless to say, it is just another way of putting out that he is the creator of the universe, that he is the beginner of it. He is the one who brought it into beginning. So the first creation, and then also the second creation, which is the church. So he is the one who originates all spiritual life. So once the church at Laodicea hear what their trouble is, they can know that if they turn to him, he has the power to make them new. He has the power to make their hearts, their lives, what they need to be by his incredible grace. So this is the one who stands and pronounces this judgment. So we ask them, well, what is the judgment? What is the judgment brought on this church of Laodicea? Well, look at verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, some of you will know in Laodicea, there were springs that came up from the ground and the water was lukewarm, not hot, not cold, just in between, warm, tepid. And so that then is impressed upon the judgment of Christ upon the church. And friends, the Lord would rather people be for him or against him because that is real. That is genuine. But to pretend to be fake, to say we are for him when really we are not, is not real. And these, you know, they're, they're neither one thing or the other. This church is in a terrible state of decline. And one of the clear indications of this was they had a totally different view of themselves a totally different attitude to what they were doing than what Christ saw. He saw it very differently. They did not realize what they really were. They thought themselves to be far higher in God's estimation than they were. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich, I become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's one of the tragic facts about any declined church or wayward church, wherever it is found in any generation, they do not know themselves. They do not see themselves as God sees them. Their own view of themselves is often far higher than they have any right to suppose it in God's sight. Tozer said this, mortality and temporality are written all across the church of Christ in the world today. 
because so many persons are trying to do with human genius and power what only God can do through his spirit. It's always the case when men become complacent and self-righteous and self-satisfied that they think themselves to be what they are not in God's sight. You know, they may have much favor with the world, with people, but they are careless in their ways, far from scriptures, and in in reality, far from where the Lord wants. It's interesting, Laodicea was also a very wealthy place. You know, a millionaire's playground, as it were. And when there was a great earthquake, they could build up the city from their own pockets. They didn't need any help from outside, from Rome or anything like that. They had everything. And no doubt the church was in a similar position, impressive in appearance, approach. They thought that this was what mattered. And Jesus says, you don't realize. You don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. God was not interested in all the externals, all their appearances, all their outward impressions of wealth and success, their riches. He was concerned with their hearts. God is looking for the humble, broken, contrite heart in dependence upon him. He's looking at the state of our soul, whether we've got genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we love him, love him above everything, whether we prize his truth and love the gospel, how far we cherish those things which are laid down for us in the word of God. The measure of those things reveals whether we're rich or poor in God's sight. And the reality is, it was also likely that a number amongst them weren't genuinely converted. They'd not trusted Christ themselves. They were poor, miserable. They didn't know the joy of sins forgiven. They were blind. They couldn't see the truth. They were naked. They weren't clothed in the the gospel righteousness of Jesus Christ. They didn't know the gospel. They didn't have the power of God at work in them. 2 Timothy 3.5, they had a form of godliness, but denying its power. As one says, the power of godliness consists in being filled with the love of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, walking in holiness and humility and obedience to the truth. They knew nothing of that genuine work in their lives. Do you know, friend, it would be a tragedy if you were here this morning and you were like that. And so I ask you, where are you in your heart? Where are you really? You see, the the Son of God stands and searches. His eyes are piercing. They see into the depths of who we are. They, They search our hearts, our lives, our motives, our intentions. You know, you say, well, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, it means to be spiritually self-satisfied. It's those who think they don't need any more of Christ. You know, one of the ways we see it is, if we're in that state, is to consider how frequently, how expectantly, how earnestly are we striving with the Lord to have a deeper knowledge of Christ. Do we cry out for a greater earnestness in prayer and boldness in witness and sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit? Do we long for a deeper sorrow over sin and yet a warmer compassion for the lost and more divine power to love and to serve? Are we going after the Lord? Or are we so consumed with this life and with this world that actually he's relegated to a position outside of our innermost affections? You know, truly spiritual people who know the Lord are humble, selfless people 
because they realize that the eye of Christ is upon them. That he sees their thoughts and their hearts and their motives and their words and their actions. The true Christian is profoundly aware of his imperfections. Do you know, I've stood here before you now for 15 years. And that thought has never left me that I will be called to a stricter account before the head of the church. He sees all things. And you know, the reality is here that he then rebukes them. But notice that he rebukes and chastens them from a deep love. Friend, there is something worse than the rebuke of the Lord Jesus. It is Christ withdrawing any rebuke. It's if he doesn't do it. You know, when God loves us, he reveals these things to us and he, he chastens us and he rebukes us to draw us back to himself because he loves us. But when God gives people over with no rebuke and lets them go their own way, that is so much worse. As one explains, the silence of God is the most profound and terrible judgment a man or a church could have. If we're sensitive to his chastening, knowing that he disciplines those he loves, we know that he wants to change us and draw us back to himself. And so Christ's eyes upon the churches, Christ searches and judges, he exposes the church here at Laodicea for being something that they are, they think they're one thing and they're not. And so he then brings this great counsel. Christ's counsel for those wanting deliverance. Because surely if these things challenge us, if we're aware of these things, we will not want to stay in that state. And so what is the solution? What is the outcome? Well, the Lord Jesus says, verses 18 to 19, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. And so the head of the church tells them what they need to seek from him in order to be transformed. And so he says, you need to seek genuine faith. Seek genuine faith. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. This gold is genuine spiritual worth. It is the gold standard of God. And this is speaking of true faith. To make sure that we have that one qualification with which, without which no man can please God. Think of Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so gold is a reference to the faith which justifies and brings us to God, the faith which overcomes this world. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is that, that faith which is a gift of sovereign grace. And the evidence of a person having that gold standard is that their life becomes a life of faith, trusting in Christ moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. The gold of the grace of God in the human heart, it teaches men and women to live a different kind of life, a life of faith. And these needed to seek that. They also needed to seek Christ's righteousness. White garments that you may be clothed. The white raiment is the robe of Christ's righteousness, the robe which he has tailored for us as the God-man. It is incredible that the Lord Jesus in his great love for sinners like you and me for his people came and shed his blood 
and to that place that, that you and I rightfully should have had. And as the appointed mediator, he stood between God and his people and he gave himself substitution, a propitiation to bear away the sin of all who would trust in him. Jesus, our Savior, gave himself. And for those who believe in him, he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements against us, has taken our sin and nailed it to the cross. And all a person needs to be cleansed is faith alone in Christ alone. And as soon as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will clothe you with his own righteousness, the righteousness which he achieved and obtained by his holy, perfect life and by his blood and agonizing death. And you are clothed in those white garments. You are clothed in that, that righteousness, as it were, so that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see all your sin and your filth. He sees the perfection of his son. And he says, seek that. Seek genuine faith. Seek that righteousness. And then he says, seek spiritual illumination. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You know, eye salve, that ointment to improve a person's sight. Here it is speaking of spiritual illumination. The light of God in the soul of man. The power to discern. You know, sin blinds people makes people not see their true state. But when we get this spiritual eye salve, as it were, then we see the character of God, the reality of God. We see the character of sin. We see ourselves. And we see our great need of a Savior. And the Savior comes to them, and he offers them these things. And the Lord Jesus says, if you will ask from me, you may have everything that you need to save you, prepare you for service to God in this life. I will give you everything you need. Just call to me. Call upon me. I counsel you to come to me and buy these things, gold and this eye salve, this white raiment woven by my life and death. Come to me. And the righteousness of Christ has this hallmark and stamp upon it, the stamp of heaven upon it, and you can tell when a person is wearing it because they live a life of faith. And they repent and turn their back upon this world and they, they live now for the glory of God and they wear this robe, this white raiment and they have this genuine faith in the illumination. Christ is the solution to this church's greatest need. And you know, for all that's taking place today, Christ has been lost sight of. And we need to come back to him. And you know, there's a wonderful promise as we draw it to a close that comes with this. And it's the promise of overcoming. To him who overcomes. What does it mean to overcome in this context? Well, these people at Laodicea, they were hearing this sobering message. They were being exposed. It must not have been an easy listen. And no doubt they cringed and they shrank under it. But then he says to him who overcomes, in other words, who's listening? Who is paying attention to these things? To the one who truly hears, there are great promises and blessings. But what are we to overcome? What are we to overcome? Well, one of those things is the fear of man. You know, there are many churches who are not prepared to do the right thing because they are afraid of losing out with people. They fear man more than God. 
and they try to please the people more than doing what pleases the Lord. Do you know, there's a proverb which says, the fear of man brings a snare, and it has to be overcome. And friends, as individuals and as a church, we must not take our standards from men, but from the word of God and stay true to the word. And if they don't like that, they don't want that, that's on them. We must be those who desire above all to please the Lord and obey him and not people. The other thing that we need grace to overcome is our own flawed thinking. Sometimes we have to overcome things that have become bad habits in our lives. Maybe ideas that we've picked up and cling on to that just aren't biblical. Things that we cling on to even though they're not Scripture, they don't line up with Scripture. Maybe our own preferences, agendas, what we want selfishly rather than what the Lord wants. And we can all be guilty of that. But we must correct it. We have to battle to overcome that by God's grace. But to the one who by God's grace does overcome and battles these things and seeks the Lord and runs to him and and depends upon him to make right what is wrong, there are wonderful blessings. And see this, friends. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's staggering. The Lord Jesus promises to all who overcome, to all who endure, to all who cling on to him and look to him, that they will sit with him on his throne. What a promise. Mind-blowing. You know, you'd think people would be desperate for for such a thing, for heavenly glory, to be with Christ, for, for true riches in Christ. But they love this world too much. They're too bound up in this world. The cross comes before the crown, suffering before the throne. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. It's the way of obedience. It's faithfulness to the truth, regardless of the cost. That's what the Laodiceans have forgotten. They wanted a religion of convenience, a religion of ease. You know, they, they were happy to come together from time to time, but then go and live the rest of their lives in the world. You know, there was no real power in it. There's no faith, no dynamic energy, no witness to the truth, no mighty working of the Spirit of God. They were lukewarm. And friends, there are great consequences if we ignore those warnings. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What is lukewarm will be spat out. The Lord Jesus says that if they ignore this warning, there will be terrible consequences. One commentator divides them up, and let me share them with you. Any church which does not walk in the light of his word as they should, after giving them time to repent and mend their ways, if they refuse, Christ will stop praying for them. You know, friends, churches can cease. We know that ultimately the church of Christ will endure and be victorious. Local churches can cease. Our Lord is interceding for the churches and if he ever stops praying for a church, it withers and it dies. I pray God that he will never say to us that I will stop praying for you. To vomit the church out of his mouth also means that he will teach us his word no more. There'll always be preachers. There'll always be men who want to speak and all the rest and others too. But it'll be those who only tell the people what they want to hear, tickling their ears. 
There'll be no preaching of the whole counsel of God. There'll be a, a famine in the land. And it will tickle the people's ears until they're dead. To vomit the church out of his mouth also means the withdrawal of blessing. No more genuine, lasting blessing. There still might look as though there's surface happenings, but there is nothing of eternal significance. And to vomit the church out of his mouth also means there'll be no comfort in death. You know, you see it already. Sometimes you go to funeral services and there are only empty words and it's shocking. There's no sense of God. You know, there's no, no sense that the, the, the one that is there and minister and leading is indeed preparing souls for eternity. Jesus will vomit them out of his mouth. And so when churches decline, there needs to be that new start to repent, to do the first works. There is a terrible relevance to that in our land. And friend, we have to examine our own hearts too. But the wonder is this. Christ speaks to everyone in the churches and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What is that but the offer and promise that if you welcome Christ into your soul and life and, and church and home, he will bless you with his fellowship. You know, taken out of context, some try to portray Christ there as, as Jesus calling softly and tenderly. The picture is not that. This invitation follows a stern rebuke and an incredibly serious warning. And the idea is of the Lord Jesus pounding on the Laodiceans' door with the urgency of emergency, the situation too serious to ignore, a warning that he will break down the door and judge the church if it doesn't repent. Is the Savior knocking on the door of our hearts? Are we hearing him or are we ignoring him or even worse, resisting him? Spiritual lukewarmness and tepidness, typically it doesn't feel like grave danger. It's like a tolerable sort of nearly pleasant malaise. But it's deadly. And in this state, we don't realize how pitiable, how poor, how blind and naked we are. And it's the loving discipline of our Savior to warn us and the cure is to be zealous and to repent and to run back to the law. And friend, you know this? Even though we may have drifted, even though we may have at times refused his care and strength, however cool our hearts have grown, the Lord Jesus remains near to us and he is ready to forgive ready to restore and to embrace us. The King of heaven will not make us run far and wide to him, even when we indulge in self-reliance and put off prayer and slowly drift away, he stays close. He is standing at the door even now. And he wants that fellowship with us and to feast with us at the banquet of his grace and his mercy. And not only at his table, but on his throne and our hearts, they may be prone to wax and wane for now, but they will not when we run and rule with the risen Christ in glory. So the question to you is this, where are you? Where are you really? Do you know that saving fellowship with Jesus Christ? Have you actually wandered and need to come back to him? Here he stands. Here he speaks. And with the promise of coming to you. 
And if Jesus is knocking on our door, let us welcome him in fully that we may eat with him and he with us. Do you know what I long for this year? I long to have the fullness of Jesus Christ more in my life. And I long for that for you as well, that you would know more of that fullness of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we wouldn't be caught in a state like this where we are in such a poor spiritual condition, but that we would be those who run to Jesus Christ, the one who is ready to embrace us, to draw us closer to himself and to give us all that we need to know him, live for him and serve him. Friends, this is a sobering passage. The lessons are so important for us. And I pray that by God's grace, that we would be those who have ears to hear and that we would indeed be those who run to the Savior and call upon him. Amen.